Yay, good morning. My name is Mackenzie Houston. Today we will be reading from parts of Zechariah, which can be found on page 793 in the Pew Bible. We will start on chapter 1, verse 1, page 793. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declared the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now we'll skip to chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus said the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mackenzie. Good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Jimmy Dodd and uh, honored to be with you here today. Let's, Let's pray together as we jump into this passage. Father, we come this morning once again just acknowledging that we are a church of broken people, but we also believe that Jesus Christ has come to solve our greatest problem, and that Advent is such an appropriate time to celebrate that, to celebrate that God is more loving than we are sinful, that God is more good than we are bad, that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. So, Father, come and have your way in this message. Open our hearts and our ears that we might hear from you that there would be life transformation only because... Time of year, right? The song says it's the most wonderful time of the year. 
Everybody gets excited? 40 years of pastoring has taught me a very clear truth. Christmas is a magnifying glass. If you're doing well, it feels better at Christmas. If you're in love, it's better at Christmas. If your job is going well, if things are really good in your life, it feels better at Christmas. If you're in pain, it hurts worse at Christmas. If you're sick, if you're struggling at work, if you're struggling with your finances, if there's issues with a marriage or relationship, it hurts worse at Christmas. Christmas is a magnifying glass. Advent, for many, is the most painful time of the year. You see, there's nothing more painful than forced joy, right? You're in the midst of a difficult time. You're in the midst of a difficult year. And all of a sudden, we hit Advent, and people say, hey, come on. And you think, oh, I, feel, I feel worse for not feeling good. I feel bad for not feeling good. And so then shame and guilt begins to wash over you. And for many, many people, it's really a difficult time of the year. And so what do we need? We need hope. We need hope. And today, this passage, I think, is going to really walk us into uh, a message of hope. Because we're talking about the minor prophets. And so today, we come to Zechariah, which doesn't feel like a minor prophet because it's 14 chapters. He was right on the edge of, like, the major prophets. He's right there, 14 chapters. He's the longest by far of the minor prophets but he gives us an unbelievable message of hope. Because when he wrote this, they needed hope. They had just, they had just come back from this long exile, <clears throat> and they come back, and they're trying to find some hope in life. Because at that point, there were, there were cultural issues and political issues and so many things that just seemed to be so wrong in their lives. And so he's trying to give them a message of hope. He writes at the same time as Haggai, but it's interesting, there's more of, a, more of a straightforward, hey, you need to do all this stuff in Haggai, whereas Zechariah, it seems to be a little bit more hopeful. It seems to be a little bit more light. It's just more, hey, I just want to do everything I can to encourage you. I want to do everything I can to lift you up. Zechariah is very much an Advent book. It's a Christmas book because it's that one minor prophet who talks more than anybody about the coming Christ, about his first advent, and then the fact that one day he will come yet again. It is such a powerful, powerful story. There are five direct quotes in the New Testament, but there are 28 clear, clear references to this story all throughout the New Testament. There are 31 references actually all throughout the stories that we hear about Jesus, especially in Revelation, there are so many stories about Malachi. It's all, excuse me, Zechariah. Malachi is yet to come. Um, the way that he actually arranges it is also interesting. He does the thing, it's basically 8-4-2. He gives us eight dreams that he had. He had eight dreams in the same night. And he writes down these eight dreams in chapters one through six. And these are eight dreams that have got a little bit of mystery to them, but they're somewhat clear. And then he gives us four very, very clear messages. Very, I mean, four just abundantly clear. There's, he doesn't mince any words, but he just gives us four messages. He talks about reality and repentance and restoration and then rejoicing. 
And then he gives us two of these powerful things that are like these oracles, which is a message that just burns in your heart that you just have to get out. And the first oracle is really about Christ's first coming. And then he talks about the fact that Christ will come actually once again. These are prophecies, and these are amazing prophecies. It's startling how accurate he is as he predicts the fact that Jesus Christ will come. He talks about the life of Jesus Christ, although it's hundreds of years away. He talks about the life of Jesus Christ in such a clear way. Amazing, the fact that God gives him this insight. He talks about the fact that there will be a Messiah, a branch. He will come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He speaks about the fact that he will be betrayed, and there will be a cost to that betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He speaks that this will also involve something about a potter's field. Amazingly, he says that at his death, Jesus Christ will be pierced, and his hands will be pierced. We're told that in actually chapter 12 and verse 10. So we're told there that Jesus Christ will be crucified and that his hands will be pierced. Here's what's so incredible about that. Crucifixion would not be invented for another 500 years. Nobody had heard of crucifixion. It wasn't a thing, and yet he gives a very clear picture of exactly the way that Jesus Christ will die. Absolutely amazing. But there is so much in this book, we could spend months and months and months on Zechariah, but we're going to just spend time in chapter 3, because chapter 3 is the picture of a courtroom. And because there is a courtroom, there is an accuser, and there's, a, and there's just this long trial, and there's a verdict, and there's an outcome. The angel of the Lord in this passage is God himself. Satan is the one who stands there accusing and Joshua's there basically being charged with these crimes. And so I want to just walk through this passage. And, and so it's this way. We're going to walk through the fact that there are these accusations from Satan. These accusations from Satan. Then there is acquittal by the angel of the Lord. And then there is an aftermath of the trial, which tells us things that we have got to do. So first of all, the accusation of Satan. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan is the great accuser. Satan's main job, his primary job, is not to tempt us. His primary job is to accuse us. He's the great accuser. We're told this over and over again in Scripture. We're told us that he day and night constantly is always constantly accusing God's people. The accusations might sound like this. God really doesn't love you. You're a terrible person. You're unlovable. You can't be forgiven. Because of all of your sin, you can't be a child of God. You haven't done enough to be a Christian. Satan will constantly come and accuse us. And it's interesting, but I find that Satan does lots of accusation as we stand in line to take the Lord's Supper. It's so easy to think, gosh, what, what am I doing here? I should, I'm, I'm not worthy to take the Lord's Supper. That's not true. We are not worthy. We only stand to take that meal because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what he has done for us. 
But Satan loves to come in our minds and accuse us. He accuses us at Advent. These, these things can't be real. But Satan does those things. That's what his name means, the slander, the accuser, the one who attacks. His name actually means the one who actually prosecutes you. He comes with all of these accusations. Why would God answer your prayer? You think so many bad things in your heart. How can you possibly know Christ? There's a warning here, actually, by a man named C.S. Lewis, and he says, you know, the thing is with Satan, we can go to these two extremes. We just think so much about it and just have such a big way we think about Satan, 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 and everything, or we just completely ignore it. He said that we have to strike a balance. There's a balance in the middle that we have to understand Satan is absolutely real. It's not just a name that we use for like a force in the world of evil. He's actually there trying to destroy our lives. Satan is powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. Satan is crafty, but he is not all-knowing. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know your thoughts. Satan is wicked, and he has lots and lots of demons that do his work, but he cannot be in all places at all times. He's not omnipresent. And so Joshua stands before the people. He stands in filthy garments. He stands and he represents us. Because we stand before the Lord and even our best efforts in life come forth as filthy rags. So Satan is there accusing, saying you're standing here, you're the high priest and yet you're in these clothes and they're absolutely filthy. All is wrong in your life, all is bad in your life. You deserve judgment, you deserve to be condemned. And then there's acquittal by the angel of the Lord. This is the hope. This is the amazing news, starting off in verse 2. Then the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. May he rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with, with these filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were there near him, Remove these filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's the gospel right there. That's the gospel in one sentence. I will take your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I will clothe you with my righteousness. And so I said, Put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with these beautiful, clean garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's the truth. When the Lord Jesus Christ saves you from your sins, when you surrender your life to him, no one in this world can bring a legal accusation against you for the junk that you've done. That's the truth of the gospel. When we are saved, Satan no longer has any legal standing to make accusations be before us, before the judge. We are declared free. Jesus' death on the cross, it settles it. So the question becomes, well, then why do I feel accused so often? If on that day, if I'm actually free, if I'm made free from these things, then why do I go through Advent and through life and feel these accusations upon my head so often? 
That's a great question, but we have to know that when you are a child of God, everything that you need, everything that you owe, it has been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is both mercy and grace. If you travel a lot and maybe you fly to New York, you know that you might fly into JFK or you might fly into maybe one of the worst airports in the world. Everybody say with me, LaGuardia. It's not the best place. If you walk around the airport, though, there's little signs that tell you about the life of that man. He was the mayor for years and years in New York, all throughout the whole Depression, and then, then all throughout World War II. He served for a long time. He, he was a character. There's great stories about LaGuardia. The fact that he would ride around town on the back of these fire trucks just because he thought it was fun. Uh, he was a smaller guy. He was about... He was about 5'4", but he was a ball of fire. He would take tons of orphanages to baseball games constantly. And back then, there were lots and lots of newspaper strikes. If there was a newspaper strike, he would go on the radio and read the funny papers because he said children still needed to laugh even in the midst of the hard times of life. One thing that he was known to do oftentimes was to go to a night court and say, Judge, you know what? You've got the night off, and he would take over night court. January 13th, 1935, it's a cold night to New York. He shows up at this night court, and he says, Judge, you've got the night off. The first case was an older woman who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her grandchildren. Um, a story we've heard lots of times. There might be a play that sound, sounds a lot like that, but th this is very, very much a true story. And uh, she says, you know, Judge, uh, my, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I'm just in the midst of hard times because my daughter is very, very sick. She has a husband that's supposed to work and actually earn some money for us, but he's left us. He's completely gone. And I have these grandchildren and, and they're starving. So yes, it's true. I stole a loaf of bread. So the mayor looks at this man that brings this charge and says, come on, this is a grandmother. And this man says, listen, we, I, I have to press these charges because we live in this awful neighborhood and there's just constant crime. And if you let her off, it'll just have absolutely the wrong message. So judge, I can't drop these charges. And so the mayor just felt just like he had no choice. But he said, ma'am, I, I have no choice here. I mean, the law is the law. It's $10 or 10 days in jail, and it's one or the other, and that's my verdict. And before he had even slammed his gavel down, he was reaching into his pocket to pull out, pull, to pull out a 10 and to pay that price. And then he slammed it down again and said, I find everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for allowing us to live in a city where a grandmother has to steal bread to feed her children. And so they pass around the hat, and everybody is forced to put in 50 cents, even the red-faced shop owner who'd had the bread stolen from him. The next day, the Times reported that she left with this amazing gift, $47.50, which she was then able to go out and to buy food and to buy bread. When the judge pays that fine, that's incredible mercy. 
But as he takes up this offering, uh, that's amazing grace. That is a picture of what was done for us in the court. And so the Lord Jesus Christ amazingly says, you know what, I'm, I'm not only going to give them a break here, I'm not only going to pay the fine, but I'm going to do something else far, far beyond that. For Jesus Christ, it was this. He didn't just give us clean vestments. He didn't just give us clean clothes. He said, take off your filthy clothes and I'm going to put them on. I'm going to wear your filthy clothes and I'm going to go to the cross wearing your filth, wearing your sin. That's the most amazing gift that we could ask us, but I will take yours. It's the great exchange. It's the greatest exchange that's ever taken place in the history of the world. We can't even imagine it. Yet in the midst of this, we still struggle with these accusations in our own heart. We still accuse ourselves. We still hear those lies from Satan, which he speaks to us, and they have a massive impact upon our life. So how can I mute Satan, just, just all of these accusations of Satan? How can I turn up Christ's volume and mute these accusations? First of all, we have to repent. We have to repent, and oftentimes we have to repent of thinking that our sins are too big for God's mercy. That's one of the primary things that we can like, actually repent of. We all need to actually repent of things right now. Maybe the fact that we say, God, I, I deserve a great Advent. I deserve, a, I, mean, I mean, I deserve all of these things at Advent that are just make me happy and well. Maybe you need to just repent of the things when you believe that you have the right to your own schedule, you have the right to your own money, you have the right to have good health, you have the right that your kids will thrive, you have the right to a happy future. And we need to surrender all of those things to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we surrender our agenda to Jesus, we truly, fully surrender, it mutes the accusations of Satan. And then also, as you hear things from Satan, as he just constantly accuses you and say, hey, you've done all of these things wrong, maybe one of the best things you can do is to run into his face and say, that's not the half of it. It's so much worse than that. I mean, if you want to know, it is so much worse than that. And even if I have not done all of those things, that doesn't make me worthy. What makes me worthy is only the standing and the purity and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can speak truth right back to Satan. These are the things that make me worthy and righteous, not you. Then these, the, these garments, just constantly remember, God doesn't hide his eyes from your filthy garments. He knows your filthy garments. He takes them off and replaces them, and then he puts them on. That's the most amazing thing. The moment that we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, he removes though that filth and replaces it with his righteousness. There are some of you here that you're in the process of trying to think about Jesus. We are so glad that you're here. This is a safe place to just contemplate Jesus. But some of you here have the wrong message, and it's this. You think you need to clean yourself up before you come to God. You think, I need to be a better person. Then I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to get rid of these things in my life that I know are just so far from true, so far from good. I know they harm me. And once I get rid of these things, then I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, no, 
You can come to me with all of your filth and all of your sin and all of your pain, all of your filth, and I will remove those things from you and I will give you clothes of righteousness. That's the promise of the gospel. God removes, he, he says, I will take away the guilt and the shame and I will replace it with the grace and mercy and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is the aftermath. There is the aftermath of the trial, which we're told in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Then the angel of the Lord assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and if you keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, which means that's actually God's temple. And you shall have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right to access among those who are standing here. Now, now you, 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 you actually owe Joshua the high priest. You and your friends who sit before you, they're men who are here for, 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 for a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I will bring the branch. For behold, on that stone I have set now before Joshua a stone with seven eyes. And I will engrave upon it that this inscription declares the Lord. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. How's that possible? By the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. He will take our pain and our sin and all of our iniquity in that moment upon the cross. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under the vine and under his fig tree. That's an incredible charge to us. Listen, as you experience this grace, as you experience the fact that God takes on your vestments, which are filthy, and gives you these brand new vestments of righteousness, here's the charge. Invite other people to be a part of this. Invite other people to come to sit under your vine and your fig tree, which is a picture of peace, which is a picture of rest. You think about Jonah, and at the very, very end, you know, God creates that vine that grows up, and he's like, okay, this is the greatest thing in the entire world. And then he says, God appoints a worm, comes and eats that vine. But just for that time, he was so unbelievable, you know, just so content. It's a picture of contentment. It's a picture of peace. And the Lord is saying, you need to go out. You need to take this message out. You need to make sure that people hear this message. And the message is so very simple in so many ways. The message is, what do people need for Christmas? People say, well, I don't know if I need anything for Christmas. There's a lot of things I want. I don't know if I need anything. There is something that you need for Christmas. You need it 24-7, 365. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gift that you need. And grace is the thing that we struggle with. And we find it so hard because I understand that we want to do things for God that are good and right. And we constantly are trying to, gosh, I just want to please God. And yet for some reason, we find God's frown upon our life or we think that. We think that God just might not be pleased with us. And for some reason, those accusations come back over and over again. And those accusations, as we've read, come straight from the mouth of Satan. We need to learn to walk and to live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to learn to repent, to actually repent of our sins. And maybe one of the best ways is not just to repent of our sin, 
but to learn to repent of the sin behind our sin. God, I feel angry at this Advent season uh, because things aren't going well at, at, at work, and I'm really, really frustrated with my boss. So, Father, I just confess to you that there's times I wish that my boss would have an accident and he would not have a happy Christmas. I just confess that I think those thoughts at times. Okay, that's a good thing to just confess. What's, what's the sin behind the sin? What lies behind that? Um, God, I confess that my boss is in control. I don't like it. I, I like to be in control. I'd feel better if I had charge of things, so I just confess that to you. Okay, what's the sin that might lie behind that sin? Maybe I don't want you to be in control. I don't trust that you're truly in control of my life. I feel like there's so many things that I should be in charge of, and yet uh, I have a hard time trusting you. So I just, I just confess that to you. Okay. What's the sin that lies behind that sin? I don't believe in Christ's sufficiency. I think at times, I think I'm probably smarter than God. Uh, I just have my own agenda, my own ways. See, now, now we're down to some core issues. It took a long time for me to get down to some core issues in life. I think I'm still there. Um, but one time period that I think I really got down to some core issues was when my wife and I went through a course that helped us to learn about repentance and to learn about the gospel. And it was taught by a man that we have tremendous respect for. His name is Jack Miller. And Jack was the guy that every time I saw Jack all throughout my life, he would say exactly the same thing. Hey, Jimmy, cheer up. You're worse than you think. <laughs> but you're more deeply loved by Jesus than you will ever possibly comprehend. That's, that's the gospel right there. Jack would also ask me, what are you repenting of right now? So one thing that really had a big, big impact upon my life to actually understand this involves some shirts and some garments and being clean and dirty. And Jack shared this story, and it had a profound impact upon my life because I thought that's, that's the way that I think so often about my life. Jack said that he had been, you know, trying to do this work with, all, with you know, lots and lots of the, the, these you know, folks, just trying to share gospel grace with them. And there was this one really kind, kind woman, but she just struggled to really understand grace. And then there was a day that uh, she went through some things and she wrote to Jack and she shared this very, very strong letter with him. Dear Jack, when I was very young, I was outside with a bunch of my older sisters and they did laundry. And after they did the laundry, they would hang up my dad's white shirts upon this clothesline. They would laugh as they helped out mommy in this thing that they did every day for him. Even though I was small, I was suddenly overcome with the urge to help. I wanted to hang up those white shirts on the clothesline. So I took one of those white, wet shirts, and I tried to reach that clothesline, but I couldn't reach it. It was just too high. But there was a wheelbarrow there in the yard, and it was just the right height. So I walked over there, and I put my dad's shirt on the handles of the wheelbarrow. I didn't really take time to look and see just how old it was, 
and how rusty it was as I joyfully pinned the shirt on to these handles. That day, my dad came home from work. He saw his white shirt on the rusty wheelbarrow. He was furious and punished me very, very severely. Jack, as I remember those scenes from my past, I think I had not believed that my father in heaven was any different from that dad that punished me that day. And you know, that's, that's a lot of people. In short, I had not believed the gospel which says that he loves me and he is forever for me. He has adopted me and I am his child in Christ. God has made me pleasing and beautiful to him forever and ever. That next day, I saw this really good friend and I said, you know what, I think I'm finally starting to understand the love of God. If the Father, if my heavenly Father saw me next to that old wheelbarrow with that just awful shirt, he would forget the shirt and run and hug me and love me all the more. My friend gently spoke to me. I understand what you're saying, but I think that you don't still fully understand the love that God has for his children. You see, your heavenly Father would not overlook the shirt. He would take it off and he would put it on. He would wear it to work. And when somebody walked up to him at work and said, uh, dude, there's rust marks all over the back of your shirt, he would say, oh, let me tell you a great story about my little girl and how much she loves me. Jack, I was overwhelmed with that realization. I think I'm just now beginning to realize that my entire life has been this just constant effort to earn God's pleasure by trying to get the shirts hung up just right. God would answer my prayer if the prayer was just right. God would smile upon me if my theology was just right. But Jack, I've now come to realize that God will not despise the tainted love gifts of the sinner who looks to Jesus Christ. You see, we are cleansed by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're declared clean and forever loved. And if we believe that, the accusations of Satan will become less and less in your life as we believe the truth of the gospel. Remember, making trips to see loved ones and eating amazing food and to sing Christmas carols and to give special gifts, those are all wonderful things. Unless you think that those things will fill your life and fix your brokenness. Because they won't. Because no matter where we are in life, the greatest season of joy or the darkest night of your soul, there's one message that we absolutely have to just hold on to so tightly. The angel said, do not be afraid for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you and he is Christ the Lord. Only Jesus can meet those needs. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope of, the, of this amazing day. The hope that we have is the Lord Jesus. He has taken our iniquity away. As we come to partake of his meal, 
of his supper. I understand that there are accusations of Satan everywhere in our hearts. And I pray that this day that you would mute those things by just surrendering once again and saying, God, I don't stand on my own righteousness. I stand on your pure righteousness. This meal is for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. This meal is for those who've actually surrendered to him. If you're here and you've not yet surrendered, we're so glad you're here. But we would ask you not to partake of this meal, but to stay in your seat. And I want to ask, I want to pray today that you would, you would realize, Lord, I want to give you all of my filthy garments. I want to just take these things off today. I'm tired of wearing these clothes. And I pray that you would clothe me with your pure righteousness. I pray that this would be a day that your life would be transformed. For those of you here who feel like your whole life has been constantly trying to get things right, doing just a little bit more to get the shirts hung up exactly right, that you would realize that this is your heavenly Father. And God will not despise the tainted love gifts of a child who seeks to please him. As flawed as they might be, as much rust as there might be on the shirts, God will not despise us. God is for you. God loves you. God has sent his son that he would come and give us life itself. And then he sent his son to the cross that we would absolutely know that righteousness when that great exchange actually took place. When you come today, maybe you speak directly to Satan. Say, hey, all the things that you accuse me of, even if these things were not true, I'm still not worthy to come and to partake of this Lord's Supper. I'm only coming to partake of this meal because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. It's not my work, it's his work. It's not my accomplishments, it's his. And that's what gives me joy in this Advent season. So I pray that if anything happens, that there would be a magnifying glass upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would see it all the more clearly, and that that would bring you hope, life, and joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you took the high priest Joshua in filthy clothes, who is representing every one of us. And you said that his iniquity is removed, and you gave him clean vestments. Father, we pray that that would be a picture of every person here, that we would stand before you we would give you all of our filth. And Father, we realize that it doesn't just disappear. Our sin doesn't just magically vanish. It's put on you. You put on those clothes. You put on the filth. You take everything upon yourself and you give your life for us upon a cross. Your hands are pierced and you're crucified, which Zachariah saw 500 years before it even took place. Those things are going to happen and take place because of your incredible love for us. Father, during Advent, may we see this clearly. God, mute the accusations of Satan and turn up the volume on the message of gospel grace that we need to hear every day. We are worse than we think. We are worse than we will ever admit. But we are more deeply loved by Jesus than we will ever possibly comprehend. And as we take of this meal, may we give you the praise and the glory that we have life itself in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you're ready, you come.